Turn in your Bible to Psalm 127, please. This evening, the Lord willing, I want to speak on the subject, the difference doctrine makes or the marks of a Christian. The difference doctrine makes or the marks of a Christian. This morning and next Sunday morning, two messages in a series on the Christian home. Today, the marks of a Christian home. Next Sunday, the mother of a Christian home. May we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for this privilege of being together in the house of the Lord. We thank You for all that has transpired and blessed our souls and caused us to lift our hearts in adoration and worship. We pray now that the Holy Spirit would speak to us from the Word, that we may honor God's Word and listen to what it says and uh, constantly be at the task of measuring our lives by what the Bible says. In the name of Jesus, amen. The 127th Psalm Matter of fact, Psalm 127, 128, 129, some have called household psalms. These are psalms about the home, and they used to be sung by the Hebrew people. No wonder Psalm 127, verse 1, has been lifted out and made to be a foundation or basis for everything that even relates to the home. Many times this passage is used, this verse is used related to our country, to our nation, sometimes to our churches, but it always has to do with our home. As we read this psalm, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. And I would like to say this. The Bible says, and sometime soon I want to bring a message on this, the Bible says that God has exalted His Word above His name. The Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is so precious. It is for us to believe His Word. As we read this, we're going to read it responsively. I want to read the first verse, you read the second. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman walketh but in vain. Lo, children are an heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of the mighty man, so are children of the Happy is the man who hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Thank you. You may be seated. That would be an appropriate verse for next Sunday. I hope that. Uh, People will bring their families, and incidentally, the, fam- the Bible never rationed families. God never said, now be sure you just have one child or two children. He didn't say that. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. That's what the Scripture says. 
the marks of a Christian home. As we think together about this, I want to just say that we are living in a time when the home is being attacked as never before. There are poison arrows being directed at the home. There are pressures aimed at the home. Our schedule's too busy. Outside work patterns. The breakdown of authority. The lack of respect for each other, not just lack of respect for mother or daddy, but sometimes the lack of respect for children. We live in a time of child abuse. And even though this is taken out of a context and sometimes we could give wild stories about government authorities moving in when a mother or father simply disciplined their child and their children are removed. I read a story this week about in Iowa about a mother and daddy who decided that God wanted them to teach their children at home which is certainly permissible and in most of the states many of the states of America there would be no problem with that many of the nations of America but in Iowa they have some strange rule that says that is outlawed and so when these parents decided to raise their to teach their children at home and have a home school Without any warning, the government authorities came in and took the children from that home and put them in foster children, foster homes. Child abuse works in a reverse way. Sometimes it's parental abuse on the part of government authorities. But a time of, when we live in a time of sort of a, if it feels good, do it philosophy. And whatever goes, whatever the current trend is, let's get in on it, everything will be all right. The Joneses are do it, we can do it. The people on television can do it, we can do it. If the soap opera people uh, have divorce after divorce and swapping of wives and swapping of husbands, well, after all, that must be the way everybody in America does it, so let's do it. And that's, those are some of the pressures that are being brought on the home. I want to speak this morning not from experience, but from much observation and much study about this subject. I've talked with some people in recent weeks and months concerning the home. And I asked this question to a number of people. What do you think are the qualities of a Christian home? What are some things that come to your mind when you think of a Christian home as you measure this by biblical perceptions? I got a lot of answers. I have 16 or 17 written down. Number one, unity. A home that is together. Mother and dad and children unifying their efforts, unifying their concerns, living in unity. That doesn't mean they never fuss. Anybody tells you there's a home there's never a fuss uh, has broken one of the commandments. But it means there's a unifying purpose in that home. Number two, love. I guess one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of a Christian home is the word love, L-O-V-E. There are three kinds of love spoken of in the Greek. They're all translated love in English, in the English Bible. Eros, phileo, agape. Eros is physical kind of love, physical attraction. Phileo is a fellowship kind of love. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. 
Agape is God's unselfish love poured out. And when you think of love in relationship to a Christian home, you have to think of all three. It is, it is eros that draws a man and woman together. It is phileo that keeps them together, enjoying, that keeps them enjoying being together. It is agape that seals the crevices and all the marks and all the ugly things and keeps them for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Somebody else said closeness identifies a Christian home, where we feel close to each other. Someone else said, I think a Christian home is where we worship together, where there's family altar, where Christ is magnified and the church is magnified. And we do not tear the church apart in our home. Sometimes the chief meal at Sunday is roast preacher, Sunday dinner. Uh, this isn't my remark, this is their remark. And they said, uh, uh, somehow I believe that a Christian home is where there's a family worship and where there's a love for God's church and where they all go to church together, the same church, not one to one church and somebody else to another church, but they all go together to the church that mother and daddy have chosen. Somebody else said home is a place to be refueled or a reassembling of our self-image. You know, out in the world, our self-image is torn all apart. We live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's a competition world. And if you're uh, really competitive and you can accomplish great things, you're way up here and everybody admires you. But if you're not way up there, uh, somehow uh, they all look down at you and you have a tough time. But home, a Christian home is where you come home and your self-image is restored. And people love you for what you are, not what they want you to be. Incidentally, you don't ever reform somebody by marrying them. In marriage, obviously people change, but you can't marry somebody and say, I think after I marry them, everything will be all right. They'll change and, and uh, everything's going to be fine. It just doesn't work like that. The man who drinks before marriage is probably gonna drink after marriage. The woman who's a nag before marriage will probably be a nag after marriage. <laughs> the man who can't be faithful to his, uh, the one that he says he loves before marriage probably isn't going to be faithful after marriage. Then someone else said, Christian home is a refuge from the world where all the pressures and competitions and humanistic lifestyle try to drag one down at home, a Christian can be a Christian and not be reviled or ridiculed. A home is enjoying being together and doing things together, a togetherness. Christian home is where we spend quality time, not quantity time. You know, sometimes People can spend so much time with each other that they get bored with each other. They can't hardly stand each other. A Christian home is not necessarily where you spend all the time together, but where you spend quality time. And when you do get home and you have time together, 
It isn't nagging and fussing and fuming and telling, well, husband, you didn't get this thing painted, or wife, you didn't do the dishes, and all that kind of thing. It is where there is a togetherness and a quality time together. I think sometimes this is misunderstood. And some wives feel like their husbands need to be home all the time. Some husbands feel like their wives uh, give too much time to church and so on. There needs to be a quality time where there is given preeminence to a togetherness in the little bit of time you do spend together. This is exemplified in the life of uh, a man that used to serve on our staff, Brother Lonnie Mattingly. When he was here, he and his wife had just given their lives back to God. Lonnie got called to preach, and uh, they had a number of children, had several children in their home. Lonnie got busy in the Lord's work. Anybody that was here in those days remembers that he was busy. He gave hours and hours and hours to the bus ministry. He gave hours and hours and hours to soul winning. He gave hours and hours to intricate detail in the work. He wasn't home all that much. Sometimes I would talk to Nancy about it. And Nancy would say, well, when we are home together, we have good times. We have quality times together. He isn't here all the time. When he's not here, I'm busy taking care of things, taking care of the children, and so on. I don't resent it. Let's look at it 10, 12 years later. Their children are not in the reform school. Their children are not in jail. Their children love Jesus, and they love home. And they're still together as husband and wife. Quality time. Not necessarily quantity time, but quality time together. Well, somebody else said home is a place of trust and forgiveness where we trust each other, not suspicious. You know, suspicion and jealousy are like green-eyed monsters and they tear things apart. There are some men that are so jealous of their wives, their wife can't do anything, can't even go down to the grocery store without the husband thinking she's looking at somebody else. And there are wives like that. But a Christian home is where there is trust. And that trust is not just superficial, it is an earned trust because husband and wife live that kind of life. The Scripture says in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. That is, he doesn't have to go somewhere else. He trusts his wife. Someone else said, Home is a place where it really matters, where it matters what happens. We had a good revival meeting over at Kansas City. God blessed. I did not see this happen personally, but I heard the story of a little boy that got saved during the meeting, and we had several people. God blessed in a wonderful way in that meeting. The people had prayed and prepared. A boy got saved, and he went home and told his mother he got saved. The response was just a blank stare. Well, I hope you'll be a good boy now. That was it. Now, that's not a Christian home. A Christian home is where it really matters. Things that 
that happen in a person's life really matters. It's important. When a person gets saved, it's exciting. When a person has a birthday, it's exciting. When a person is honored through some basketball uh, trophy or some football honor or some academic honor, it matters at home. There's a celebration at home. Someone else said, a Christian home is where there is teamwork. We share work, we share responsibilities, we share heartaches, we share the victories. All jealousy is put aside. And we have to teach that because boys and girls sometimes have a competitively jealous nature. And sometimes brother is jealous of sister or sister is jealous of brother. But moms and dads can assist in that. A, home is, a Christian home is where there is prayer together, where we read the Bible and we have a family altar. Day after day after day after day after day after day after day. Not reading long chapters that nobody can understand, but getting the family together and reading portions of Scripture and letting the children have part in reading portions of Scripture, letting children have part in praying. Not a long time that would make that something that would be boring and you'd hate to have it, but a time of spiritual refreshment. Someone else said, a Christian home is where we're not embarrassed or ashamed of each other. If some malady occurs, if some tragedy occurs, we can go home and know that there's going to be love there. We're not loved because we're never wrong. We're loved because we're loved. Someone else said, a Christian home is like a magnet. It draws people. It draws other people. And so there are going to be some friends that will want to come there and see what's going on. It's like the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem to see Solomon because his fame had, brought, had gone out across the world. And she came and she said, why not half has ever been told? And sometimes our homes can be like that. Well, I could go on with some comments people have made about the home. Those are interesting things. I want to just lay three things on your heart this morning as we think about the marks of a Christian home. Number one, regard for the sacred trust or institution. The mark, one of the, one of the chief hallmarks of a Christian home is the regard for the sacredness of that trust, or that sacredness of that institution. The home was the very first institution God created before he made the nation, before he made government, before he made the church, he made the home. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, the story is of the first home. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth. And God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God made the home. First thing he made. He said it wasn't good for man to dwell alone. So he made for him a helpmate. And together Adam and Eve became the first home and God gave them an assignment 
replenish the earth, have children, and then later in the scripture, teach those children to honor God. I've had some interesting marriages, some interesting weddings. The marriage covenant is a very precious covenant. Often when a couple come, we say to them, you're standing in the presence of God and this company of witnesses, and we're uniting these two in holy matrimony. Marriage is a word that speaks at once of the most tender and beautiful relationships of life. It was instituted in the Garden of Eden when man was in his innocency. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he made, of, made from him that out of which he made woman. God did not take man from man, uh, woman from man's head to rule over him. God did not take woman from man's feet to be trodden under him, but rather God took woman from man's side that she might be the lifelong companion in all the experiences of life. In those weddings, beautiful, ornate, everything decorated like a king's palace. Had some interesting things happen. One day, we had an aisle cloth. You know, most weddings, many weddings have an aisle cloth. And, and so uh, the two ushers that were to take the aisle cloth down the aisle came over here. And they didn't bother to look back, see what was going on. They just picked up the piece of aisle cloth and they started out and they went on down the aisle. And when they got to the back, they had just a piece about that long. And the rest of the aisle was, the rest of the aisle cloth was down here. When, when it was put together, somehow it hadn't, it was put in two pieces. It was, of course, everybody laughed, it was funny. We had another wedding uh, where the husband put the ring on the wrong finger. And so when we prayed, uh, it wasn't in this auditorium, it was in, a, it was in the auditor in auditorium where the, you could hear things like um, bounce. Matter of fact, this was in Louisville. It was at a little wedding chapel and the floors were all stone. And so during the prayer, the, the husband decided to change the ring and he's gonna put it on the right finger, the, the correct finger. So he took the ring off and while he had it off, it dropped. You could hear the ring bounce, 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 bounce. I was praying. And uh, so I heard some giggling and some funny things going on. And so I peeped a little bit, opened my eyes, see what was going on here. The, the groom was down there crawling all around the floor trying to get the ring. And pretty soon the bride got on her knees and she was trying to get the ring. And then the best man. And pretty soon all four of the people standing there were down looking for that ring. And the people in the congregation, of course, could see it. And they heard all this, and they were laughing, and so the wedding was almost torn up. We had another wedding. <laughs> Best man had the ring in his pocket, and he fainted. And the ushers took him over there and laid him out. And the groom ran over there and reached in the pocket, in all of his pockets, trying to find the ring, and finally got it back, and... The wedding went on. One of the most interesting weddings we ever had, uh, there were some ornate plans being made for a beautiful church wedding, a big wedding. And just a short while before that, the couple changed their plans and decided to have the wedding 
solemnized after visitation on Thursday night. They came to visitation, they went out soul winning, and then about 10 o'clock that night, we arranged some just candlelight service here and very simple, uh, nothing that cost anything. And they were married in one of the most beautiful weddings we've ever had in this church. At the close of the wedding, the groom decided that, or they had already decided this, uh, I was going to hand them the marriage license. I started to hand them the marriage license and they handed me something. They handed me a check for $1,000 for the bus debt. They said, uh, this is what our wedding might have cost. We wanted to give it to God. I want to suggest to you that we need to have regard for the institution of marriage. The very beginning of it, the wedding itself, I think it's beautiful for it to be solemnized in the church, in the building, the, the house dedicated to the Lord. But we also need to remember that marriage was made by God and God's plan was one woman for one man for all of life. Now certainly we've all broken God's standard in many areas. And we're not to think that because we break God's standard that we have committed an unpardonable sin. This is not true. There's only one unpardonable sin which is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But so many times we go into marriage thinking if this doesn't work, I can try something else. If I find out after I've been on the battlefield of the home for a few years and somehow it doesn't work out very well, I'll find me a new man or I'll find me a new woman and everything will be okay. And we get halfway into the marriage life and we look at the soap operas or we listen to all the society ratings and we hear all the things and all the pressures that are going on and finally we say, I did not bargain for this, I'm going to get out of it. And so there's a dissolvement of the home. One of the marks of a Christian home is regard for the institution of marriage, a high regard. But when the institution is broken, not to feel utterly depleted and so defeated and so discouraged that we go through the rest of life discouraged and, and so utterly out of things that we can't ever accomplish anything again. God is a God of the second chance. God is a God of the second chance. One of the marks of a Christian home, a great appreciation and regard for the divine institution of the permanency of marriage but also a recognition that when we fall short, we can regroup our individual resources spiritually and start our life over. Secondly, I think we need to realize the standards that the Bible suggests about the Christian home. In, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, 
there are some specific standards given for the Christian home. Turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 18, this whole discussion deals with how a a spirit-filled believer approaches the family relationships. Be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Those three characteristics of everybody who is filled with the Spirit, there'll be a song in their soul, there'll be a thanksgiving on their heart, and there'll be a spirit of humility and and submission, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And he is speaking here of the home. So many times we think that the wife is just to submit herself to her husband, which the Bible says, but the scripture says that husbands and wives and children all have a role to play. And there is a, a sense in which there is a submission on the part of each to the other, a spirit of humility. And then we deal with the wife. Verse 22, wives, submit yourself unto your husband as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wife be to her own husband in everything. The husband is, the wife is to recognize the role of the husband. The husband is the leader of the home, the director, not the tyrant not the dictator, not the big boss, but the director. He is the initiator in the home. And the scripture says that the wife is to recognize that role. So many times, wives do not recognize that role and they want to be the boss themselves and they want to call all the signals and they want to make the final decisions. The Bible says that's a reversal of the role that God planned for a husband. The husband is the director of the home, the head of the home, even as Christ is the head of the church, and we are subject unto him. Secondly, beginning in verse 24, 25, husband, love your wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. The husband is commanded here to love his wife. Now, the scripture doesn't say that the wife is to love her husband in this passage. It does in other passages. But the reason for this is the husband, in loving his wife, initiates that love and, as a result, receives the response because love always receives a response. If you, want to, if you want to know the truth of that, you just start loving a dog. See what happens. That dog will be your friend. He'll follow you around. He'll love you absolutely to the end. He'll go out and sit on your grave when you die. You love that dog. You love a child and pour your life into that child. That child will respond to that love. Now, when a husband loves his wife the way the Scripture says, and the word for love there is not eros or phileo, it is agape, agapao. 
And that word is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is gentle. Love is kind. Love suffers long. It is not puffed up. It, is not, it, does not seek to be, it does not seek its own, and so on. All those wonderful qualities of love, 16 qualities of love. Love never ends. And this is the way a husband is to approach his wife. He is to love her. Now I want to tell you, if a husband loves his wife like that, she, he's not going to have time to be looking after some other skirt. And if the wife at home will let her husband be the director and the initiator, there's going to be a togetherness. So many times, wives seem to want to reward their husband with what they ought to be able to have all the time. And husbands tend to re from totally loving because sometimes they're not sure what kind of response there will be. The Scripture says, husband, love your wife. Now, go on. The Bible says in the next chapter, I think still dealing with the same thing, a spirit-filled Christian. Look at verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long in the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Every, in the home, every person has a particular role. The mother, the wife, is the standard bearer. When her, when her morals sag, the man's morals fag. The woman is the upholder of the standards. She is the one who is to look to her husband and let him be the leader in that home. Not the dictator, not the tyrant, but the leader. The husband, on the other hand, is to love his wife. And there's to be such a love relationship between husband and wife that children will look at that and admire it and respect it and love it. And I think it's fitting that husbands and wives express that love so that their children will not have any question but that mom and dad love each other. And children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good. It is God's plan that son and daughter yield to what mom and dad think best about everything. God has made mother and daddy the steward of a soul for 18, 20 years. And as children grow up in the home, certainly they have a will of their own. They have a desire of their own. They have plans of their own. They have friends of their own. But God has put them under the tutorage of mother and daddy. And when children begin to throw off the bondage, the yoke, of mother and daddy, there's a deep, deep problem. God planned for children to obey mother and daddy. I counseled with a, one of the young people in our church a number of years ago. 
They had gotten saved and were going for God, loved the Lord. They, things were not that happy at home. Uh, mother and daddy were not really active in church. They were not really going for God. Sometimes they complained because their daughter came to church so much. And one time they just came right out and said, well, you can't come anymore. You just can't come anymore. And so that, that girl, that precious teenage girl came and said, Pastor, what should I do about this? I've, I've given my heart to the Lord. The Lord is my God. I love him and I love the church and I want to be here. Mom and dad say, I can't come. What should I do? We prayed together. You may not agree with this counsel. We prayed together, read the word together. And I said to that precious girl, God gave you a mother and daddy. The Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother. Here's what I would suggest. You pray. If you can pray with your mother and daddy so that they can be with you in prayer and they can hear your prayer, pray with them so they'll hear you pray. Pray that God will let you go to church. Pray that God will bless your parents. Tell God you love your parents and you love your home. And then, I said, uh, when, when it comes time to go to church, get yourself ready. Do all the chores in the home that are necessary to be done, that should be done, that are your responsibility. And then go to mother and daddy and say, now mom and dad, I really would like to go to church, but if you don't want me to go, I won't go. And then just sit down and wait. See what happens. <laughs> well, this precious girl did that. She loved God. She was a, a humble, precious Christian. And she did that. And she uh, told her parents that she really wanted to go to church. But she said, you're my mother and daddy. And I love you. And I want to honor you. And I want to do what you want me to do. I really want to go, but if you say that I need to stay at home, I'll stay at home. She did that two or three times, and it wasn't long until her parents said, you go to church. You go to church. They had seen a difference in her life. They had seen a yieldedness, a spirit of humility. I think this extends on as to where a young person goes to college. What he does later in life, so many things are involved in honoring mother and daddy. The mark of a Christian home. Realize the standards. Last of all, recognize the enemies. Arnold Toynbee was lecturing in the United States some time ago, and he said of all the great nations that have risen in power and then crumbled in ruin, America shows the evidences of what those great nations showed before they crumbled. He said they did not go down the tube because of the invasion of outward of armies from the outside. What caused their demise was lust, luxury, and liquor. And I think three of the chief enemies of the home today are lust, luxury and liquor God made us like we are he gave us all those wonderful desires within us like in the spring when the sap begins to come up in the trees and it produces the beautiful leaves and all the vegetation 
God made us to have that energy, that creative energy called sex power. God made us like that. That is not something to be ashamed of. That is not a dirty thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it has been perverted. It has been misused. And Satan would come along and cause us to be filled with lust. Lust for power. Lust for, for the things of the world. Lust physical, fleshly lust. And probably there's not a greater enemy of the home. And this is the reason I would urge you to limit your television viewing. Almost everything on television today deals with lust. You can hardly see an advertisement about a new car without seeing a half-naked woman advertising it. And these soap operas and the movie channels and, and the videos and all those other things, all of it related to lust, to try to reach into your life and take that which God has given to you, a wonderful, beautiful expression of the inner being of your soul and pervert it and lead it in a wrong way and make some husband that has covenanted with a woman to love her and be loyal and faithful to her until death shall do them part he begins to lust after somebody else or she begins to lust after somebody else I want to tell you what goes on in these factories when you have lunch breaks and breaks for coffee and all that and a man and a woman who are not married to each other come together and sit down and begin to unload all the problems of their home on each other it is no wonder that in the factories there is unfaithfulness and infidelity because the enemy of the home is lust a second enemy is luxury. When people say the Joneses have it, the Smiths have it, somebody else has it, I gotta have it. And so we run up great big bills on credit cards and we buy things that we can't afford and we have all the luxury of the life of ease. And God didn't plan it that way. God planned that we work for what we get. That we eke out a living by the sweat of our brow. The world doesn't owe us a penny. Young people, I want to tell you today, the world doesn't owe you a living. It doesn't owe you anything. But we owe God everything. And we owe it to our fellow man to make ourselves productive in life so that we can have jobs and we can have the money to buy the things that we need and people need to live on the scale that they can afford to live on. And the other enemy is liquor. I think there's no greater, greater enemy of the home than liquor. I hate liquor. And when these people say they can take social drinks, and I won't tell you Baptists are becoming a people of the world today. And most Baptist people don't like their preacher to say anything against liquor anymore.